Amen. So we are back in Mark chapter 12, starting again at verse 28. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And so we are continuing our series that is simply called One God, Two Commandments. Amen. When we began this series, not four weeks ago, but four lessons ago, um, we read this passage here in the Gospel of Mark, but we also read the same conversation or the record of the same conversation from Matthew chapter 22. And we read that because when you put the different uh, records together from the Gospel, sometimes it gives the, the story, the account, a little bit more fullness. And in Matthew chapter 22, the lawyer or the religious leader that asked Jesus the question, which is the first commandment of all, Upon Jesus' answer in Matthew 22 and 40, the lawyer commented that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, some of us, perhaps more than others, understand what he meant by this response, but what he was saying was every law that was given to Moses, if you know much of the Old Testament, you know that God gave Moses the law, Moses communicated the law that God gave him to the people of God. He gave them all kinds of different instructions to do with all facets and areas of their lives. And those laws would become, uh, I guess we could say, enshrined in the identity of Israel. They would become the defining characteristics of the nation of Israel. And what this man was saying was all of those laws, and there's a lot of them if you want to go and check them all out. There's hundreds of them, in fact. But he said all of those laws would be taken care of, would be addressed, would be obeyed by paying attention to these two categories. Firstly, loving God with all that we have. And secondly, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because all of the laws that God gave Moses had to do with, firstly, our relationship with him, and secondly, our relationships with other people. Amen. And in the context of the ministry of Jesus and what he came to accomplish... This is very significant because if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was sometimes challenged about either himself or his disciples breaking the law because the the religious leaders, because they didn't think there was enough laws, they created a whole lot more and added to them. And so they they got upset when Jesus or his disciples uh, broke some of those laws. And then Jesus and his response to them would usually demonstrate that he was in fact keeping the purpose or today we might say the spirit of the law rather than simply a hard rule. And sometimes Jesus would actually teach them an adjustment to the law. He would say things like, you have heard it said, or you know that's what the law said, but I say unto you. One example of that is when he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or in other words, you hit me, I hit you. He said, but I say unto you that you don't hate your enemies, that you turn the other cheek. So he, he, he made some upgrades, if you like, to certain parts 
of the law, but he made it very clear as well that he was, in fact, the fulfillment of the law. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Jesus speaking, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, or we might better understand that as he came to complete its purpose. He was the, the pinnacle of the reason the law was given in the first place. Amen. And again, if you are familiar with some of the New Testament, you will be aware that the Apostle Paul devoted large amounts of his letters, his epistles, to the subject of the New Covenant or the New Testament, the relationship between God in the New Testament versus God and his people in the Old Testament, how it was a better replacement. It was a new relationship. And and Paul emphasized that mankind had failed to keep God's law. In fact, mankind had failed to keep God's law not because the law was flawed or because God's first effort was lousy and he needed to work on his performance. God doesn't do anything badly. There was nothing wrong with the law, but rather what the law revealed or exposed was the weakness of humanity, of how we can't do everything that God wants us to do by ourselves. Amen. In Romans and Galatians, especially, it's mentioned in other epistles, but Romans particularly and also in Galatians show us that what the Lord did was it laid out the expectations of God, but simultaneously revealed our shortcomings. And how even though this is what the law said, at the same time, it revealed our sin. That's what the Bible says. When the law came, it exposed us. It revealed that we, in fact, have sinned. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says, says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified or made right in the sight of God by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So when, when we consider the law, we need to realize that in our strength, point yourself and say, my strength, In our strength, we were not and still are not able to please God. You cannot do enough good deeds. You cannot do enough acts of kindness to get enough brownie points to get yourself into heaven. I don't care if you are the nicest person that ever breathed. You do not have the natural ability or power to save your own soul or to take away your own sin. Amen. And so in Galatians, we read that the law was our schoolmaster or our teacher. It taught us about God. It taught us what pleased God and it taught us how God expected his people to live, to act and to behave. The Lord did that. It was to bring us to Christ and we might say its purpose was to prepare us for and to lead us unto what Jesus was coming to do. That's the purpose of the law. Now, from what we read in Galatians 3, we have faith in Jesus, not faith in ourselves, But faith in Jesus and what he accomplished, not what we accomplish, but we believe and trust in what he accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So it's not a confidence in our abilities, but rather it's a faith in what he has done for us. And from what we read there in Galatians 3 and there are other passages in the New Testament, we are his children by faith. Most of us, as far as I'm aware, are not Jews. 
Some of us may be able to track Jewish lineage if you go back far enough. Sad to say that doesn't count for a whole lot right now. It's not about who your great-great-great-great-grandfather was. It's about do I believe in Jesus Christ? That's what makes the difference. Amen. So we, we cannot save ourselves by our own actions. We do not have the natural ability. And that's why Jesus came and he took care of those things. And so we now believe in what he did. But here's the, here's the, here's the place where we have to pause because often this is where a mistake is commonly made. Because people say that because it's by faith, therefore we don't have to do anything. Or Jesus doesn't care how we live as long as we have some kind of elusive mental acknowledgement or belief in him. That's not really what faith is. That simply isn't true. Because if you have faith, faith produces obedience. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, believe in me. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments or if we were talking about parents and child we said do what you're told (laughs) he said if you love me you'll do the things that i tell you to do again it's not and not a belief in our abilities or our strengths or that somehow we are achieving something or causing something to happen but it's a belief and it's important we get this balance it's a belief that when we do what jesus says to do then he will do what he said he would do That's important for us to believe. We obey him by faith and then he responds with the promise that came with the instruction. Amen. I hope that makes sense. For example, in the New Testament, the disciples, I believe it's the end of of Luke's gospel. It's not in my notes. I believe it's Luke 24. The disciples were told, keep my commandments. They were told to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. That's what they were told to do. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Now, they did what they were told, or at least some of them did. It would seem that not everybody was there. So humanity to this day proves that some people listen, some people don't. But those that did what Jesus said went to Jerusalem and waited, received the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 2, when God poured out his spirit, that was what they were waiting for. Now, nobody claimed that they gave themselves the Holy Ghost. Nobody claimed that they filled themselves with God's Spirit, but they obeyed God by faith. Jesus said, do it. They believed it. They did it. He gave them the promise. But nowhere in that process are they saying, hey, I gave myself the Holy Ghost. I earned it. You know, I I stuck at this prayer meeting for 10 days. That's a long prayer meeting, folks. I stuck it out, therefore I deserve it. No, no, they just did what Jesus said because they believed him. And then they received the promise. Amen. So when Jesus said that the first and second commandments from the Old Testament were the same as the first and second commandments in the New Testament, both of those could not be obeyed without demonstration. When you think of the instruction to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, how is... How is that possible without being observable in some way? If I'm loving God with everything that I have, surely there's something about that that people can see a difference. Otherwise, are we really doing what it says to do? But here's the next step. If they couldn't keep the law in the Old Testament, what makes us think we can keep it in the New? Amen. There's two very important differences between the Old and the New and keeping those commandments. Firstly, 
Our faith is placed in the saving work of Calvary and in the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus, not in our abilities. Secondly, the power to overcome is now within us when we have received the Holy Ghost. Every one of us can testify we still have temptation. We still have struggles. Sometimes our attitudes are feral. But we can choose to overcome because God has put his spirit within us. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 told us that when we receive the spirit of God, we will have power to be witnesses. Again, a witness is not somebody who simply tells something what they saw, but it is a demonstration of the change that he has made in our lives. That's the witness, that people would not just hear what we say, but they would see what God has done because of the power of God's spirit in our lives. Amen. That witness means power to demonstrate actual change actual transformation because if it's all just talk talk's cheap talk is cheap but demonstrated change cannot be argued with amen amen so we should still in the new testament take the consequences of sin very seriously eternity is at stake eternity is a long time and what we do with the gospel will determine where we spend eternity that's what the bible tells us But now, our motive is love for Jesus, not fear of a law, but love for Jesus because his spirit is within us and we are called by his name. Amen. That's different. And our ability to love as we have been commanded to love the Lord with all our God, love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, the ability to actually do that is power sourced by the Holy Ghost. We've got a different battery now, if you want to put it that way. There is a different source of power because that spirit that comes from God produces in us a love for God when we allow it to and a love for others that is not possible without it. Amen. I don't care if you are, again, the nicest, sweetest person that ever lived and you just think everybody's wonderful. If you do, something's wrong with you. But the reality is that when we have the Spirit of God, we are able to love those that naturally we would find very difficult to love. Amen. That's why having the Holy Ghost is so important. John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. How are we supposed to love? As he has loved us. There's a challenge. My Bible says that he loved us first, that he loved us while we were still in sin, that he loved us when we didn't have a clue about his love or the fact that he cared for us and came for us. He loved us anyway. And if you remember from earlier lessons, when we talked about the love of God, we talked about how that word love is translated from the Greek word agape, which means it's a sacrificial love. It's not a superficial thing like I love pizza or I love football. It is a sacrificial love that is willing to put somebody else first and to even give of ourselves and be inconvenienced and even suffer because of love. That's his love for us. So the love that he expects us to have is that same love And that is how all men will know. That is an observable demonstration. Otherwise, what are they seeing? How will they know? Amen. 
But see, this, this instruction to the disciples in John chapter 13 is before the cross. It's before the tomb. It's before the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus is sitting around with his chosen 12, telling them that they should love one another as he has loved them. And that's how everybody else would know they're his disciples. These men are squabbling among themselves. One of them wants to call down fire on people that won't listen to them. You know, one of them has their mother trying to get her baby boys the best seats with Jesus at the feast. And when you read between the lines, Peter and John seem to have some kind of rivalry going on with each other. This is the crowd that Jesus is saying, love one another as I have loved you. But this is pre-Pentecost. The Holy Ghost makes all the difference. Amen. I'm so glad that to the same bunch that he said, love everybody as I have loved you, he's the same one that said, you shall be endued with power from on high. That word endued means to clothe like a garment. There's going to be power come upon them and then it would be possible. Because before Calvary, they had a hard time agreeing on anything. But when Paul wrote to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, about the fruit of the Spirit or the things that would be produced in our lives if the Spirit was allowed to flow, love is the first thing on the list. And again, it's agape love. It's not light and fluffy love, it's sacrificial love. He also wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans 5 and 5, he said, Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So God's love, when we are filled with his spirit, God's love is poured into us, that it might flow out of us. We're not meant to be storage containers. We're meant to be conduits or we're meant to be something that it flows into and flows out of. Amen. And if the taps, if I can put it this way, if the taps in your house are running slowly, if you have a water pressure problem, you need to check the water main. The source needs to be examined. You're not, if it's not flowing out, it may not be flowing in. Amen. You can't give what you don't have. So let's, let's collect these thoughts and try to put them together and see if it makes a little bit of sense. God's people were unable to keep the law in the Old Testament. Scripture makes that very clear. Jesus, when he was asked the question, reached back to the Old Testament and said that the first commandment from the Old Testament remains the same in the New Testament. We've got to love God with everything we have, love our neighbor. The lawyer who came to Jesus said that all of those Old Testament laws that they couldn't keep, remember that they couldn't keep them, but all of those Old Testament laws were hanging on those two commandments. The game changer when we hit the New Testament is the Holy Ghost. The game changer when now Jesus says, hey, these are still the same commandments that they had way back in the book of Deuteronomy, but now you shall be endued with power from on high because now we have the love of God within us and the power to demonstrate it to the world. Amen. That's important. This world needs to understand the love of God. They need to know the love of God. And Jesus said they're either going to see it in us or they're not going to see it in us. Amen. However, again, there's another little fine print down the bottom. The mistake, the error that is commonly occurs is defining what the love of God looks like. Because, unfortunately, people 
go to the Word of God where it says that God is love and, and we should love God and love others, and they identify that love through a present culture lens. And the definition that our current culture says that love looks like is incompatible with what God's Word says love looks like. They went really quiet, but that's okay. That's okay. Love today is currently defined as endorsing any kind of affection or attraction. It's defined as never suggesting that someone else's behavior is wrong. It's defined as allowing people to have their own truth and their own values regardless of the impact of those choices. It's defined as approving the confusion of people's minds about their identity rather than assisting them towards a healthy outcome. Put simply, in our world, love is understood to mean that anybody can do anything and it must be supported and celebrated because we love them. Now that sounds nice, but that's not the biblical version of love. Biblically speaking, we must, and let me emphasize that, must, must, must have compassion on every individual. We must care for them. Amen. But to celebrate a moral behavior to endorse self-destructive conduct and to champion confusion and chaos is not love. That's not love. If somebody's going into a self-destructive mode and we just celebrate with them, that's not genuine compassion for somebody. That's madness. Whose love are we asked to demonstrate? That's the question. As he loved us. Is it not Jesus does not the scripture say that God is love? So if Jesus is love, let's look at what his love looks like. Jesus had compassion upon a sinner caught in the act of sin, but love said, go and sin no more. It didn't say, keep singing it, sin and everything's fine, we love you. It said, go and sin no more. Love, love told the religious that they were like graves full of dead men's bones. Love went to church, flipped over tables, made a whip and drove everybody out of the church. Love did that. Jesus is love. He did that. Love called one of his disciples the devil when his motives were out of line. Love said that the day was coming when some people would stand before him and talk about the great things they did for him and he would deny even knew them, call them workers of iniquity. Jesus is love. Love said that one day he was going to divide all the nations, the sheep on one side, the goats on the other. Sheep were going to heaven, goats were going to hell. Love said that if we are unwilling to be disciplined, then we weren't his children. If all we want is the blessings and the goodness, then we're not really God's kids. I didn't think I'd get an amen for that. That's okay. But let me, let me balance this by saying we are not called to call people devils or to flip tables or make whips or condemn people to hell. We're not Jesus. That's the first thing we need to understand. We're not Jesus. But the love of God cannot be defined using the definitions of current culture. The love of God must come from the Word. It is a mistake to try to mold the love of God into a, into a version that is palatable to the word that we live in, the world that we live in. Love is honest. Love is pure. If you have the love of God for somebody, you can't endorse sinful behavior. 
If you love someone, there is a place to be honest with them. Now, again, put a caveat in here. You need to always do your absolute best with how you package that conversation. But love is honest. Amen. You can't just, you know, oh, well, I told them. When somebody comes to me for counsel, for advice as their pastor, I have a responsibility to be truthful with them. But again, I've got to do my best. I'm not always great at it. I've got to do my best to take care of how I package that. But I will answer to God if I endorse sinful behavior just to save their feelings. That's not real love. Amen. Again, truthfulness. Honesty is not an excuse for rudeness or harshness. If you think that telling the truth gives you license to be brutal and unkind, that's ungodly. You need to repent. Amen. One of the greatest lies in our current culture is that people's feelings matter above all else. And that's sadly the world that we live in. The salvation of our souls matters above all else, more than our feelings. The transformation of our lives matters more than our comfort. The warning that may keep us from being shipwrecked is a demonstration of love. You know, there's sometimes I talk to somebody and maybe doing, making some choices that are a little bit, haven't maybe been thought through too well, and I try to steer them towards an honest assessment of that. You know, for the next couple of weeks at church, they're looking at me sideways. That's okay. But hopefully, there's an opportunity to help them not to be shipwrecked. You see, we have to decide if we want comfort or we want change. If we want affirmation or transformation. This is an affirmation-based society. You know, your world's going to end if you don't get a certain number of likes on your social media post. Or if some friend didn't comment on yours after you commented on theirs. What a shallow world we've become. Amen. It's quiet this morning, but that's okay. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue with some of this next week, but we're going to wander through the first half of this chapter to finish off today. Whenever we get to talking about love and our relationships with other people, Colossians chapter 3 is a great place to go. Let's start at verse 1 and then we'll look at it a bit at a time. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall ye also appear with him in glory. Okay, that's a, that's a little bit of a mouthful. The first statement is, if you are risen with Christ. What does that mean? Romans 8 and 11 says, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. So what it's telling us is, if we have the spirit of God living within us, then we are risen or we are made alive by his spirit. That's the first question. If you then are risen with Christ, then you've got to focus on some things. Then you're instructed to set your affection on some things. This is your focus, your desires, and your priorities now need to be on the things of God. That's what it says. It talks about in verse 1, Jesus sitting on the right hand of God speaks about a position of power and authority, not multiple persons. Jesus was in the base of power and authority and the power that's the same power that is available to us through his death burial and resurrection and it needs to be that power that guides us 
when we make the decisions about how we are going to live. Our lives are now hidden in God, but they will be revealed when Jesus returns. Amen. Then we get to verse 5, and then we get a whole list of nasty stuff. Mortify. Who knows what mortify means? Kill. Execute. Extinguish. Mortify, therefore, your members. It's talking about our natural body, our natural actions, which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked some time when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now, we could spend a couple of weeks on those few verses, but if you are serious about knowing what this is about, go home this afternoon this week, take your Bible out, take out an English dictionary, and read what each of those words means, each of those sinful behaviors or actions. And what you will probably find is that if your memory is even present, you'll identify with some of those from before you were saved. Maybe you're a Hall of Fame person and you can identify with all of them. I don't know. But most of us will be able to find some of our behaviors in there from before we were saved. And perhaps if we're honest, there's some that we're still wrestling with a little bit. Anybody been a Christian and still had an anger problem from time to time? Yeah? Are you just always peace and love and harmony every day? Let's put a webcam in your car and see when you're in traffic and see how you go. Amen. But we need to realize what these things... And Paul said that if we, number one, that's who we used to be, but then he said, and also put off these things. So if we honestly recognize that some of these things are still visiting us from time to time, Paul said we've got to kill them. Keep putting them off. He said as quickly as you would a foul-smelling garment. You ever taken... This is, only, only boys do this, so you ladies can just check out for a moment. You know, you take that old T-shirt out of the wash because you really want to wear it. And But, you know, it hasn't had time to go through the laundry. You've only worn it for two weeks so far, so it's a little bit touch and go. I know only boys do that. But, you know, when, he, when something stinks, it's like, get this off me. Maybe there are some ladies in the house we don't want to discriminate. If you do that as well, I'm very surprised. That's normally a male problem. Wearing old smelly clothes is normally a boy thing. Amen. But the, the, the Apostle Paul is saying, you get that off you. It's disgusting. It stinks. It represents the past. Like that old shirt has two weeks of the past living in it. Get rid of it. Put on something clean. Put on the new man. We talked about being endued with power, how that's like putting on a garment. Put on the new garment that has the power of God with it. John said in Revelation, he said, Blessed are those if we keep our clean garments on. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. Amen. Put on the new man, which is learning more and more about the one whose image we are created in. Verse 11, Colossians chapter 3. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel, as Brother Jonathan already said this morning, the gospel is for every nation, every kindred, and every tribe. Nobody is excluded from the opportunity to be born again of water and spirit. I thank God for that today. 
Amen. It's horrific to think that there have been people that believed that the gospel was only for certain people types. That's not Bible. Every nation, every kindred, every tribe. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that. I'm glad he included our, my ethnicity, whatever that really is. I've never spat in a test tube and found out. I can go back one or two generations, but beyond that, who knows where we come from. But, by the same token, those people from every nation, kindred and tribe that the gospel is for, when they are born again, they are required to submit themselves to the word of God. None of us can say, well, it's different for me because I'm from fill in the blank. Or yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but in my culture and in my heritage, we don't. That's not Bible. You've heard me teach it many times, but every one of us has to take our culture and filter it through the Word of God. Not all culture's bad, not all culture's good. So you take your natural culture, you filter it through the Word of God, the things that pass examination, you can keep those things. The things that are contrary to the Word of God, they got to go. That's how it is. That's what the book says. When the multitudes, again, Brother Jonathan referenced this, when the multitudes stand before the throne of God and worship Him, there will be people there from every nation, every culture, every language, and every era in history. But if they are there, they have all been washed in His blood, they have all been baptized in His name, they have all been filled with His Spirit, They have all been walking with him faithfully, doing their best to put off old garments and put on new ones. Everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. But everybody has to pass through the straight gate and walk the narrow way. That's what the Bible says. Amen. Verse 12, chapter 3. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, Meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I love how the King James calls it a quarrel. I wish some of the problems we had were as nice as a quarrel. Some of them, quarrel's far too nice a word for some of the dramas that people come up with. Amen. But these qualities that are listed in verse 12, mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering, they're described in the King James Version at least as being from our bowels, which in the modern language is really weird for us, but in Old English it speaks of something that is very deeply felt. It is not superficial. It is not just on the outward. It is not fake. It is genuine. And it comes from the place where we are being transformed, deep inside. Amen. And then it says forbearing one another and forgiving. Forbearing means basically putting up with one another. And yes, you need to be put up with and so do I. We've all got to be put up with sometimes and while we're putting up, we forgive as well. Amen. Forbearing and forgiving one another. Then verse 14 says, And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Again, charity, King James Version, it's love. It's that agape love. Charity is the bond, it is the glue that holds the perfection or the completion of God's people together. 
Love is what makes us stick together as God's people. It's not just because you're all the nicest people to ever be in the building or you've all just got really great personalities. It is the love of God that glues us together. Amen. And then it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You have to allow the peace of God to rule. You have to let it. it peace will not conquer. You must allow it to rule in your hearts. It's got to have permission because that peace is a part of being one body. If you're aggressive, if you're confronting, if you're always causing strife, nobody wants to be one body with that. We have to allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts. And then there's this part that I love because I know how powerful it is, and be thankful. And be thankful. And be thankful. Focus on the goodness of God. Don't focus on the junk. Amen. The things we go through in Australia as believers are so small compared to what other believers have been through. The apostles said in the book of Acts that they were they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer. Now that's a mental health problem right there. But such was their love for God that they considered it a privilege to suffer for the gospel. Be thankful. Be thankful. There's a whole lot of problems can be eliminated when we have gratitude. And we, we say it often, but it's, it's, it's something that all of us struggle with because there's something about human nature that wants more, that lacks contentment, that sees the glass as half empty and possibly poisoned. It's just there's that negativity. We've got to shake that off and be thankful. Be thankful. The old Sunday school song, count your blessings. Name them one by one. If you have to, do that. Take out a notepad and a pen and start writing things down. And thanking God for his goodness. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I've got a house to live in. I've got food in my belly. I've got a job. I've got people that love me. I, I live in a country where there's so much provision. That's without even trying. I've got brothers and sisters I go to church with that even when I'm not real great, they love me anyway. There are so many things to be thankful for. And then Paul said, let the word of God dwell or live in you richly or in abundance. Here's a question. Can you describe your relationship with the word of God as abundant? Are we saturated with it? Do we have to find our Bible Sunday morning, half past nine? We're going to leave it last Sunday. Is it in the car? You see people's Bibles up on the back parcel shelf in the hot sun. That makes me twitch. Look after your Bible. It's the Word of God. People died so you could have an English Bible in your hands. Let it dwell in us richly. Amen. Because it's from that abundance... Flow with the scripture. If it dwells in us in richly, it's from that abundance that we can teach and admonish one another. That means to warn, to encourage, to correct. Again, that's part of the honesty that comes from love. And again, if it's with the spirit and the word, it's going to be packaged nicely. It's not going to be harsh, but it's from that abundance of his word. Hey, bro, come on. I think you might be a little off track here. Let's, let's get this back on track. 
We've got to be willing to take that. Amen? Amen. And then it goes on to talk about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's part of our thankfulness. I know in the way the King James is laid out, it kind of sounds like those things are there to admonish us, but I would not recommend you sing it, somebody, when you're trying to encourage them. It's not likely to work. But make that part of our thankfulness, our gratitude that causes us to worship. And then verse 17, this is our last verse for today, says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed. If that's not the first two commandments, I don't know what is. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Be careful that he wouldn't be ashamed to have his name attached to your words and your deeds. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. All in the name of the Lord Jesus, which brings us back full circle to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Let's stand together this morning.